0: Hello and welcome again to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. Hello again, I'm Christine Burns. Estimates vary about the number of Britons with disabilities of various kinds. Some say it's one in seven, others say one in five. Either way, it's a significant chunk of the population. Historically, many disabled people have faced enormous barriers in being able to work and access facilities the rest of us take for granted. Yet none of us can be sure we won't acquire a disability ourselves through accidents, chronic illness or simply old age. If it doesn't happen to us, it may affect someone who we would end up caring for. So we can't afford to be smug and thankful that it doesn't affect us. One person who knows the barriers very well is Lorraine Gradwell, who recently received an MBE for her extensive work in the field. Lorraine is chief executive of Breakthrough UK Limited, a Manchester-based social enterprise led and controlled by disabled people and which specialises in helping people access work. Well, I've come along to Lorraine's offices in Manchester, so let's go inside and talk to her. Lorraine, thank you for uh, making the time to speak to me. Um... If I can start with a little bit about your personal circumstances you grew up in uh, Middlesbrough is that right? Yes well I was born
1: in Middlesbrough um, and I, I lived in Middlesbrough in, in my early years I caught polio when I was three um, but I, I don't think I could say I grew up in Middlesbrough Um when I was eight I went to a boarding school which was in, in North Yorkshire and I was there for four years and then when I was 13 um, I spent two years in hospital having having some corrective surgery. And I didn't actually live at home full-time, if you like, till I was 15 and a half, so I'm not sure where I did my growing up, to be honest.
0: But what was it like growing up with a disability in those days? I, I,
1: I think that's a really hard question to answer. Um, as, as a child, you take so much of what happens to you and what your circumstances are for granted, um, because that's what you know. Um, and in some respects it's only looking back that you understand what some of the implications were and for instance it was very commonplace not to go into shops with your family when you were out because of steps and so on you couldn't get in if you traveled on a train um my my mum and my brothers sat in the carriage and me and my dad sat in the guards van with the bikes and the pigeons um, and the kind of exclusion that disabled people had even for small children, was was taken for granted, and as, as I say, I took it for granted. It was it was the feature of my childhood, and it's only now I understand how unnecessary and unacceptable that kind of situation was.
0: And my own memory from the fifties, because there was a lot of. Um disabling illness like scarlet fever and polio as, as as you say around was that you would see children in, in, in class with perhaps calipers on so that's my enduring memory of, of what disability meant at school did it affect your education? I,
1: th- I think it must have done um, because I had well my education is a bit of a tapestry really um, I had a home tutor when I was six and had that home tutor so that, so that was one-to-one Tutoring, if you like, three times a week, um, and then I went to boarding school, um, but boarding schools for disabled children they 're not generally noted for their academic excellence, although I did do the eleven plus while I was there at my family 's insistence, the school weren 't going to bother with it for me didn 't think it necessary and then, as i say i spent I spent two years in hospital, and when I finally got to mainstream grammar school, which was because I'd passed the eleven plus, um, I only had six months to go to the to the O levels as we did then, so quite quite a, quite a rich and varied education. But I think academically it could have been much more rigorous.
0: What led you to becoming an activist?
1: Oh, circumstance and coincidence, probably. <laughs> I used to compete in sports in athlete, in in well, swimming mainly, and competed at a national level and an international level. And I came to college in Manchester as as part of my post school education and met with people who were involved in the disabled sports in Manchester. And this was kind of in the early eighties. When issues around equal opportunities were becoming quite quite prominent and organised, and Manchester was um, a, a leading area where the development of disability politics was happening, and and I happened to know some of the people who were who were involved in that, and they just kind of gradually sucked me into it, and that's how that's how I got involved, and and, and made some enduring friendships out of that, and and and. Forged a career out of it as well, so very, very helpful.
0: And it's good to see that disabled sportsmen and women are getting a higher profile now.
1: Oh goodness, it is so much more high profile than it was when I was competing in the um, early to, to mid seventies. We're giving clues about our ages over <laughs> here, aren't we? Um, and the, um, the the kind of coverage that sports and the the disabled athletes get today we we had none of that absolutely none of that
0: so tell me now about about breakthrough you're you're the chief executive at breakthrough how was that set up
1: Breakthrough was the result of um, very, very early partnership work between Manchester City Council and um, disabled people's organisations in, in Manchester. There used to be something called the Disabled People's um, Subgroup, which was part of the Equal Opportunity Structures in the Town Hall. And there was some work done around employment and employment support, and basically what disabled people were saying to the City Council was that the kind of support they'd been funding, i.e. sheltered workshops, was really no longer appropriate and they needed to be looking at supporting people into mainstream work. And to cut a long story short, the result was a proposal that the City Council set up, um, an employment support team to help people find mainstream jobs, and um, a training team to help them prepare for that. They also set up a company that would be controlled by disabled people who could be contracted with to provide those services. And the end result was Breakthrough. And I was appointed to make it happen.
0: So all this really coincides with the the, the emergence of the first Disability Discrimination Act. But that's always struck me as moving rather slowly.
1: I think the... Progress of the Disability Discrimination Act was dreadfully, dreadfully slow. There were somewhere between 13 and 15 attempts to get Mm -hmm. the legislation on the books, and the government of, of both persuasions was reluctant to do it. Some people say it was only brought in eventually because the government knew if they didn't support it as a government bill, then a private member's bill that was more stringent around disability would succeed, because disabled people's lobbying was getting more and more successful. Um, So a lot of disabled people, while on the one hand welcoming the DDA on the other hand, were regretful that it wasn't the full comprehensive anti-discrimination legislation that we'd looked for and that it enshrined things like reasonable adjustments and justifiable discrimination, which there never had been before. Um, So yes, it was a long time coming. And also when it came, it it wasn't exactly what most people wanted.
0: I'll come back to that in a moment. But if we first talk a little bit more about disability itself because there's perhaps a little bit of confusion there and people don't really realise the extent to which it affects people in society as well. Um, I, I quoted in the introduction figures of between 1 in 7 and 1 in 5. So, so first, yeah, are those figures correct and what do they include and what don't they include?
1: Well, that's quite a vexed question, really, because it depends who's doing the adding up and what they think they're adding up, you know, how many widgets are there and so on and so forth. The Disability Rights Commission said that there were over 10 million disabled people in Britain um, and 4.6 million of those over state pension age, with 700,000 of them being children. And obviously the issues for disabled children are very much different for disabled people who are over pension age. And, and and disability increases with age, obviously. Yeah. It's a condition of, of infirmity. Um, One-third of people between the age of 50 and retirement age are disabled, according to the Disability Rights Commission. Um, so it's really quite difficult. Um, before we had the Disability Discrimination Act, the government had to kind of count people by sickness rates and, and mm. measures such as numbers on benefits and so on. Um, and, and it's like... Just because people are on incapacity benefit, it doesn't mean that that's the same figure as the number of people who are disabled. And in a way, that's part of the difficulty, because when the DDA was being drawn up, the definitions of disability that were used were not the ones that were wanted for anti-discrimination legislation, but the definitions that were used were used for things like ease of counting. And so it's, um, it's a legislative device in terms of having a means of counting people and categorising people, really. But it's certainly not in line with the social model of disability that was developed by the disabled people's movement.
0: I was going to come on to that because you reject this medicalisation uh, of, of disability and you look at a different explanation for how it affects people and what we've got to do in order to, uh, to tackle that. Yeah. Um, can you just explain a bit more, more for the listeners, though, what the social model of disability actually consists of? I I often use
1: Manchester Town Hall as an example of illustrating the difference between a medical model or a medical approach to disability and a social model approach. And and, and every time I use this, I have to go back a little bit further. But if we were to go back about 20 years now, as a wheelchair user, I could not get into Mm. Manchester Town Hall it was inaccessible to me. So the political processes, the public functions, um, the access to some of the services that were in there, as a wheelchair user, you couldn't do that. And one of the first big projects that disabled people working in partnership with the city council did was to make plans and get the city council to commit to open up the town hall to disabled people. So it provided ramped access to the town hall. It made the connecting bridges between the town hall and the town hall extension accessible. It did a lot of work on automatic doors and and things like that. And the, the result was that after that work had done, I as a wheelchair user could access the town hall and people in it. Now, the basis of the social model is that the thing that changed there was not me. I didn't have a new wheelchair. I hadn't been cured. Nothing had happened. But the environment had been changed. And And that's the social model in essence. What it says is that if we have a society that is built and operates in a way that doesn't respond to the needs of disabled people, then they will be disabled. they will be discriminated against. but if we if we do build it in such a way where it's inclusive, people will still have issues, says a wheelchair user, you know mm-hmm. you you will have issues and you will have medical issues, but that's a different. A different matter in a way. The point is that you are not excluded by society. And by dealing with the environment and the way the environment operates, you can make it as accessible to people as possible.
0: That's a very powerful concept because it transfers the responsibility, doesn't it? It goes from saying you can't take part in society because you have a disability, Mm -hmm. instead saying we haven't built society the right way for you to take part in it. I think that's exactly so and if you think back
1: to when we started talking um, with the issue about what's changed since I was a child, very much as a child I knew that my inability to take part in society and to go to school, the same school as my brothers and so on was my fault.
0: So apart from things like the steps, uh, if you are disabled, and of course being disabled doesn't just mean wheelchairs or or visible um, disabilities, it can mean many things, what could be the sort of barriers that you face simply in getting to work?
1: Oh gosh, well in getting to work um, an, an inaccessible transport system and, and, and its infrastructure I think um, so it's not just you use a wheelchair you can't necessarily get on a bus although that's changing these days but if you can't read timetables because mm-hmm. you've got a visual impairment if you can't hear announcements because you've got a hearing impairment um, if you have um Mental health issues, and you find um, you know rush hour on the buses to be an extremely stressful situation, um, those things are all all issues that would make it difficult to get to work and i mean they 're kind of immediate on the spot issues, but also if we think that the education system is not always accessible to disabled people and so people don't gain the skills and the qualifications that they that would help them take part in the world of work. So they're real barriers and, and, and again people who've got jobs, very often they don't they don't progress in their careers because a lot of disabled people have um, an entry-level job, a low-paid mm-hmm. job, and are not not first in line for career development. So there's a whole range of issues that are, are difficulties for um, for disabled people, um, and 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 being able to live independently. At the end of the day, if you're not in control of your own life and the support that you need to live your life, then it's really hard to turn up for work on time every day. Mm-hmm.
0: So the disability legislation—it was intended to help to encourage organisations, whether they're public sector or private sector, to make some of those accommodations necessary for, for disabled people to take part in society in all in all spheres. What does it actually mean in practice? Um,
1: goodness me, I think I'd be rich if I could answer that fully. But I, I think I think it's taken time, and it's not that long since we had the DDA. Um, But I think it's taken time for some of the issues around the physical environment to become more mainstreamed. But what you don't expect anymore is that a new building will have access difficulties for a whole range of different impairments, people with different impairments. So you would expect the the lift system to be accessible to people who are blind or people who are deaf and so on, as well as having a level threshold for people who are wheelchair users. So I I think the legislation, and it's probably not just the DDA, it's probably building regs and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, Um, in terms of the built environment, not, not only has it imposed a change, but it's also a tool for people to use if that change is not mm. forthcoming. Um, it's it's quite difficult with the private sector because you've really got to be able to um, have the to yourself to sort it out and use mm. it. And it can be expensive otherwise. I, I think the public sector, in principle, of course, they've got specific duties mm. um, and, and issues and they've got to... Um, that they've got now got a duty to involve disabled people in their plans and their their um, policies, and again, I think I think it's good in parts, isn't it? It's like the curate said. Some authorities really, really do the best to make it happen, make it work, and improve what they deliver. And I think other local authorities are still to be encouraged to to look at it in that way.
0: What does that involvement actually mean and how, how does that differ from consultation which is the, re- the responsibility in, re- in respect to the other equality duties?
1: Yeah, the, the, this is always always a difficulty but the, the Disability Rights Commission in the guidance that they did were quite clear that the involvement of disabled people actually meant being able to show how disabled people were involved in developing ideas, plans, policies, whatever, and also able to demonstrate what changes happened as a result of that involvement. And they're the two key things. And so coming to a group of disabled people with a plan that's already formulated and the budget's already set and it's really not going to be changed, that does not cut it.
0: Now, in this region, in the Northwest, there are something like forty six local authorities. there are sixty three healthcare care trusts of one form one another there's uh five police forces. I think overall, there's probably about one hundred and thirty or one hundred and forty public authorities, all of which need to do that. Are they doing it i think I think statistically,
1: you'd have to say they can't possibly be. Mm. Um, um, And one of the reasons, and this is something we're hoping to get a funded piece of work on at Breakthrough, is is the capacity of disabled people to respond to this agenda, both in terms of numbers and in terms of experience and time. And certainly I I know of someone who works in one local authority um, for a a voluntary sector disabled people's organisation who very helpfully offered to bring... Half a dozen of the public sector bodies together, so they could do a joint exercise and consultation, um, and that that was that was very interesting. I think very helpful to people, but it's it's really very very difficult. And I think the next stage of, if if we don't lose this duty to involve. Under the Single Equality Bill, and it'll be a great shame if we do. Mm. Um, if we don't lose it, I think the next stage of this is about looking at the capacity of disabled people to to advise on this, because it's 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 one thing to ask a disabled Fred Off reader on the street, you know, what does it mean to you? Um, But you can't ask every disabled person, can you? We've already kind of had an estimate of how many of those there are. And there are disabled people who, who are experienced with this and who are working in this field and who can advise rather than just be consulted. And I think that's a really important distinction.
0: So you'd say that the core to that is both the sort of depth of knowledge and also breadth. So if your own experience is of using a wheelchair you're also able to advise about being hearing impaired or sight impaired or having a learning disability.
1: Or, or you know a man who can, to coin a phrase. And, and this is where, like, disabled people, networking is really important and understanding the barriers. And if we talk about communication, we understand that for blind people, the barrier is, is the written word, and for deaf people, the barrier is the spoken word. Um, and sometimes the written word because of deaf people's understanding of English. And, and to be able to pull these issues together for a range of disabled people is much more cost-effective.
0: It also strikes me that this sort of perceived complexity of the number of different areas that are involved can be something that puts off particularly the private sector and maybe there's a little bit of worry worry as well about if you've let's say you've got a small restaurant and the premises just can't be adapted in a certain way there's a fear about what happens then.
1: I mean this is where the issue of reasonable adjustment comes on into it and, and what's deemed to be reasonable and for instance let's look at um, menus and restaurants and if you've got a big chain like mcdonald's it's perfectly feasible to expect them to provide a a braille menu Mm. because they've got the resources but you wouldn't expect joe's calf to provide a braille menu and a reasonable adjustment which was given as a guidance at the time is but you would expect the the staff to offer to read the menu to people Mm. if they can't read it the the issue of Making premises accessible is a little bit more vexed and I'm I'm not entirely on solid ground there, if that's not a pun. Uh, My understanding is that resources are not always deemed to be a reasonable justification for not making the adaptations. And what would be looked for is something in the planning as to how accommodation could be made. You know so it, it it would be recognized that it would be difficult, and this this is by no means any kind of legal advice mm. to anybody, um, but it would be expected that plans would be made
0: but perhaps the key is to to start out with the will to try and see what you can do the, the emphasis perhaps is unreasonable
1: I think the emphasis is unreasonable and and part of the difficulty is that no one knows what 's reasonable until the judge tells you, and that 's part of the difficulty you don 't know in advance unless there 's case law, and there is some. Um, But, you know, when we were lobbying with Manchester, and this is way before the DDA, if we recall, um, about making the town hall accessible, the the cost was one of the things that, that they put forward as a difficulty. But, you know, there are business benefits to making your premises accessible as well. You've got a much wider customer base. Um, The the DRC estimated that the um, spending power of disabled adults was about 80 billion pounds. You know, now there must be businesses who want a piece of that.
0: And, and I've noticed too that where some adjustments are made, for instance in conferences where you get in a palantypist to subtitle the, the proceedings, it can actually be beneficial to everybody because I can't always hear what's going on from the back and you can read it instead.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. A lot of people find that very helpful. And another example I would give, um, when we worked with the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit on the Improving Life Chances report, on the, they, they had three different types of presentation on the on the uh, the work that they were doing and they had one that had about 300 powerpoint slides and then they had the summary that had about 30 powerpoint slides and then they had the easy read version that they designed for people with <laughs> learning disabilities and that had about 12 slides and I, I saw them present on many occasions because we were involved in what was happening. There came a point about halfway through that they said, we're only ever going to present with the Easy Read version because that's the only one people look at on the website. Yeah. You know, So there's clear benefits there.
0: I know, I do that. I'd, I'd rather there was always an Easy Read yeah. version of things because we don't have time to read 100-page documents. It's wonderful. It's an executive summary with pictures. It's great. So looking back... Um, has the world got better?
1: <laughs> I struggle with this because I think we'd have to define what better means. I think I think the architecture of the world has got better. Um, but I think it would be a crying shame if it hadn't. I, I think sometimes, and, and this doesn't just apply to disability legislation, but I think sometimes we get overregulated. And I think that stifles creativity and it makes people cautious and it promotes a culture of litigation and I don't think that's better. I think the current moves towards independent living and personalised budgets are to be welcomed and and indeed the concepts came from disabled people themselves. But, as always, the devil's in the detail, and I think it's really important that disabled people um clamour to get this involvement to shape it in the way that it needs to be, because I think it's 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 very hard isn't it it's a, a, you know the empowering agenda um the old the old phrase is that you can't give power, you've got to take it and and people are reluctant to give it up and I'm equating power with budgets in local authorities for instance and, and people find it very, very hard to hand that over to anybody else. Um so I think some things have improved to give a shorter answer. I think some things have improved but I think we need to be careful about how it goes forward. And I, I think one of the one of the difficulties, one of the something that's a shame, is that I don't think the disabled peoples movement is as active and as, um, what's the word, as spread out over the country and as supportive as, as it used to be maybe 10 years ago. And I think there's some, there's some very concrete reasons for that. Um, I think the tendency for third sector organisations to be commissioned to deliver services rather than to have grants to do capacity building work and so on, um, I think that's been a factor and the tendency for commissioners to approach large charities to deliver services rather than keeping things local and, and locally relevant have all sounded the death knell for quite a lot of disabled people's organisations and in that respect just at the point where the government's saying it wants to involve us that is a real shame and that's, that's um, that would be the thing that I most regret seeing happen.
0: That seems to be quite a common problem a lot, across a lot of diversities that mm-hmm. The, the capacity has run down just at the time when the whole public sector is finally waking up to the fact that it actually needs to talk to people and there's not enough people to go around.
1: Yes yes and we would we, either have a conspiracy theory about that or a cock-up theory I think um, but it does seem a real shame when as I say 10 to 15 years ago the sector was thriving, thriving with people who were Constructively critical mm. on the whole, but that's, that's where your answers are, isn't it? Yeah. Not, not where everyone agrees with you. There's no point in that.
0: So on a final bright note, and looking ahead because we're coming up to the end of the year, 10 years' time or over the next 10 years, whether it's pushing or pulling, what, what is the most important thing that you would like to see happen?
1: I would like to see the recommendation from the Government's Life Chances Report about a user-led organisation in every local authority area. Um, I, I, well, I've, I've got to be a little bit negative because I think that, that recommendation was flawed a little bit and I think it should have been a disabled people's organisation in every area. And I would like to see that recognised and supported and developed. And I think that it would provide such a richness of involvement, both at a local, a regional and a government level, that it would really take things forward. And that would be wonderful. And I would certainly try to ensure that Breakthrough is involved in that.
0: Lorraine Gradwell there, Chief Executive of Breakthrough UK Limited. And for more information about Breakthrough, see their website. That's www.breakthrough-uk.com Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense, which is also probably going to be the last for 2009. That being so, I'd like to thank everyone who has listened and made the effort feel worthwhile. I hope it's been informative for you as well. Just plain sense. We'll be back after the holidays, of course, but don't forget that in the meantime, I'll be releasing one poem a day from my collection Fishing for Birds on the separate podcast channel that I've set up for that. The address there is fishforbirds, that's a digit four in the middle, fishforbirds.podbean.com. For now, though, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just plain sense is a plain sense limited production.